This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, the digitally de-aged, younger, handsomer version of Wade. You know, Kevin, it's it's kind of strange because I've actually become the digitally enhanced, younger, better looking version of you. <sighs> technology. What will they think of next? Today on Seeing and Believing, we're going to be looking at Ang Lee's new action thriller, Gemini Man. We're also going to be reviewing what is the latest chapter in what's turning out to be the Breaking Bad saga. That would be the Aaron Paul starring epilogue, El Camino. Wait, Kevin, what if I'm the one who knocks because the one who knocks is a younger version of me? Whoa, whoa, you are blowing my mind. All of that's coming up on this episode, episode 221 of Seeing and Believing. 25 years ago, your father took my blood and he cloned me. He made you from me. He chose me because there's never been anybody like me and he knew one day I was going to get old and then you'd step in. He's been lying to you the whole time. He told you you were an orphan. And of all the people in the world to come after me, why would he send you? Because I'm the best. You are obviously not the best. That clip you just heard was from the new Will Smith starring Gemini Man. It's episode 221 of Seeing and Believing, and we're switching things up, Wade. Uh, I am introducing the first segment here. I am replacing you, one might say. We we have switched places. <laughs> Who's who? I'm the real Wade Bearden, perhaps. See, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out if you are the new me because you are a clone or if it's a face-off situation and you just have my face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you had to bring up face-off. That is, I'm going to be thinking about that in the review ahead. <laughs> Things get... Uh, pretty crazy when clones are involved, of course. But what's even more crazy is the technological aspects of Gemini Man. Directed by Ang Lee, it was shot in 3D 4K with a frame rate of 120 frames per second. That's a technological well that Ang Lee has been to once before with his previous film, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. This time, however, it's an action film that Lee is making, starring Will Smith in a dual role as Henry Brogan and Henry Brogan's younger clone, Junior. Gemini Man follows a twisty thriller plot as Brogan is targeted by a shadowy organization that has obtained his DNA, cloned him, and has put him squarely in the crosshairs. Many complications abound as Brogan meets up with Mary Elizabeth Winstead's Danny, another government agent, and together they've tried to figure out a way to get to the bottom of this and stay alive. So like I said, Wade, this is a technologically, in a lot of ways, unique film. It's not the first film to use a high frame rate or the first film to use 3D, but it is one of the first films to put its technical aspects front and center as an integral part of the experience. I happened to be able to catch a screening of the film that was as close as possible to Ang Lee's original vision. There aren't too many theaters in the United States that can show it at the full 120 frames per second, but I did see it in 3D. I did see it in 60 frames per second, so I got as close pretty much as humanly possible living in Chicago. I'm curious to know, Wade, what were the technical aspects of the screening that you saw, and what did you think of Lee's overall project to mainstream this technology in telling this story? Yeah, so I, I, if you got it the closest to Ang Lee's original vision, I got it probably the farthest away. It was just digital projection, not 3D. I, I assume it's close to 24 frames per second. See, so I, I didn't have a chance to dig into his original vision. I did read a tweet though, and I cannot, 
I cannot remember who tweeted this, but it was the funniest thing I read the last week. And they said, when they go low frame rate, we go high. I thought it was so funny. Um, <laughs> so I just, it, nothing to do with the review of the movie. Um, but I, I just thought it was hilarious. So whoever tweeted that, um, that was great. I'm sorry I forgot your name. Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't have a chance to immerse myself in that vision and I'm a little bit jealous because I kind of wish I could have done it or at least seen the film like you did, Kevin. Uh, it just seems kind of a strange decision for this movie uh I, I i'm really not sure what the point of it would be except for the idea that hey this is a new advancement in technology and we're looking or talking about clones and so somehow that could bleed into the story and the presentation could somehow communicate what ang lee's vision is overall i think the film is is uh is not good. I didn't think it was horrible like I expected it to be, but it was it was not Ang Lee's best. And I've only seen a couple of Ang Lee films. Uh, Kevin, what did you think of the 3D and the high frame rate that you saw? Well, we, we've definitely come a long way from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which <laughs> yeah, is right. just an, an incredible film and really Ang Lee at his action filmmaking best, I would say. Um, it was interesting watching this in 3D and 60 frames per second. The A common criticism that's sometimes maybe a little bit of a lazy criticism of movies is that they, is that they you know, it's like watching them is like watching somebody play a video game. That's something that gets thrown out a lot when you watch a, you know, a sci-fi blockbuster or maybe a Marvel movie with all the special effects. It's commonly said that, oh, well, you know, there's all these special effects, there's all these explosions and everything, and it just feels like watching a video game. But I find that none of those films feel as much like watching a video game as watching this film did in the format that I saw it. And here's why, is that with video games, uh, very it's very common for them to be presented in 60 frames per second. The higher frame rate, the better for modern video games because the whole point of them is to sort of bring you into the the video game world so that you actually feel like you're the one who's toting the shotgun or the one who's exploring an alien world or what have you. So in video games, it's considered an asset and a lot of uh, gamers probably turn their noses up at even thinking about playing a video game in 24 frames per second. With a movie though, and this, this movie in particular, it really does feel like I'm watching a video game cutscene because everything is so buttery smooth. It's immersive, but it's immersive in the wrong way. Basically, it feels so immersive that it feels like I'm standing next to Ang Lee's uh, you know, camera person and the rest of the on-set crew watching Will Smith and Mary Elizabeth Winstead be actors on a film set. So it's immersive, but it's immersive in a way that actually takes me out of the story because everything looks like I'm right there, except right there is pretty clearly a film set or slightly enhanced with CGI. And you're right that it seems a curious choice for a movie like this that really needs you to suspend your disbelief quite a bit even to accept the kind of story that it's telling so that even though this high frame rate is sort of a uh, suspension disbelief breaker that's especially fatal in a film like this where it asks a lot of the viewer right up front with its premise yeah i mean this is a story about an individual being cloned, we get to see a young version of Will Smith. We've seen him before. He's not a new actor, so we know what he looks like when he was younger. And we also get some scenes where people are picking up these motorbikes and, and, and just kind of letting them fly to try to run over other people. It, it definitely recalls some of the, at points, some of the more freewheeling 80s action movies where you go in and you're not watching Bourne. You're watching a contrived action movie with over-the-top action, similar to what the Fast and Furious franchise has has tried to uh, replicate. Uh, here, I, th I think the biggest problem with this movie is, is Lee doesn't fully embrace that milieu 
that premise, he kind of waffles back and forth. And so we get some kind of funny lines where Will Smith will say, you know, why don't they clone more doctors and lawyers? Why don't they clone Nelson Mandela? And it's like, okay, yeah, that's, that, you know, it's kind of funny. And then you get these, <laughs> these other moments where he's saying, my soul is hurt. I just want some peace. These overly serious moments, uh, overly serious action set pieces. So there is this identity problem with the movie. Now, that's not to say that some of it isn't enjoyable. I, there were some scenes where, uh, these characters are on motorbikes and, uh, there are shots behind them, single take shots. Uh, and it's, it's all kind of fun and it, it does feel a little bit immersive. And I, I do kind of wonder what that would have looked like in the 3D that that you're talking about in the high frame rate. Some of that I think works, but Ang Lee just has that identity issue with the with the film which is kind of ironic because the, you know this is a movie about a character having an identity issue. Yeah, uh, the script for this movie is bad. I don't know that there's really any other way around it. It's there's on a line by line basis there are just a lot of these these kinds of groaners that are either clichés or it's the sort of joke that is kind of amusing but it's not funny and it kind of when when you're again watching something that's supposedly this immersive watching somebody toss off kind of an Arnold Schwarzenegger one liner is ridiculous in in the exact wrong way that you want a Schwarzenegger one liner to be right like you want it you, you with an action movie like this, you want kind of maybe that kind of level of ridiculousness, but you want the audience to buy into it. Like I'm watching a movie like Face Off, and yeah, it's ridiculous, but you also you, you buy into it because you know that's sort of what you do when you when you buy a ticket for a movie like this. So it's a script that's bad to begin with, but it's also just at loggerheads with the the presentation that Angley has chosen to go with for this movie. Now, I will say that the action sequences, for the most part, I think work for me. Lee does shoot it, for the most part, pretty well, especially there's a mid-film fight between the two Will Smiths that is really well choreographed, and Lee pretty much shoots it um, in medium shot, and he kind of keeps all the action in frame most of the time. This isn't like you know the, a Bourne movie where it's trying to immerse you in the chaos of combat by using a lot of handheld. Um, it's much more controlled than that. And for the most part, I think that works well, and the action scenes are, for the most part, thrilling. It also makes some of the athletic feats that Will Smith and or his stuntman go through in this film where the younger clone Jr. is somersaulting off of a roof or kind of like doing all these parkour things in a really smooth high frame rate, it does look kind of uncanny in a good way, in a way that you're kind of watching this person going like, how is it possible that someone is doing that? It kind of, it makes the stakes a little bit higher because you're kind of brought into older Will Smith's mindset as he's watching his younger doppelganger do all this stuff and be kind of amazed by it. And you're kind of creeped out by it in the same way that he would be. So those parts work, but for the most part, it does feel like Ang Lee is falling between two stools here, where on the one hand, he wants to have kind of this traditional action movie, but on the other hand, he wants to port in a uh, technical style and a cinematic grammar that just doesn't fit with what else he's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a sequence towards the end where we see this machine gun fire, and it looks like all the bullets are tracer rounds, and that's that's pretty cool. And it's kind of this over-the-top moment that I think works. And then I, I think, too, Ang Lee will take a couple of chances that— I, I guess I didn't expect in this type of movie. One of them is this kind of long take with thermal goggles. We get the POV shot. And like you said, it is about I immersion. And in some scenes, it gets kind of silly or you mentioned uncanny, but it can play to this film or this story when Lee uh, lets it play uh, to this story. Overall, though, it, like you mentioned, the the writing is is pretty bad, and 
I I would have liked to see Clive Owen in his character. He plays the big baddie in this film. Um, I would have liked to see a little bit more from him. So one intriguing premise is that he helps raise this this younger version of Will Smith's character, and he becomes like a son to him. And that's kind of fun, like in this almost kind of pulpy way. The bad guy is like a father figure. And there are some scenes when he seems to genuinely care about his quote-unquote son. Uh, I don't know if the film really kind of capitalizes on those moments to create tension. It relieves that tension a little bit too easily. Uh, in addition... The idea that, you know, Will Smith's character, he carries all these scars and he wants to stop his doppelganger from, from getting them. It, it's really just kind of underdeveloped. And then overall, it feels like this poke at something serious, but I don't know if Ang Lee is in tune to that wavelength. And perhaps it goes back to how, how serious can we get? When we're talking about clones and we're talking about parkour and we're talking about these giant machine gun laser tracer rounds, you know, what, what can we do with that type of story? Uh, the Fast and Furious franchise movies, uh, that I don't necessarily like at least have that big idea theme of, Hey, like it's about family. Like it's about, Hey, we care about each other and we're going to do a lot of crazy stuff, but ultimately like we do care about each other. I don't know if Gemini man has that core to kind of go back to. Uh, it really all kind of feels just underdeveloped. And as a result makes this overly serious section feel just out of place with the rest of the movie. Yeah. Part of the problem is that the, the script simply just, it, it does not develop these characters in a way where they can sustain the kind of thematic work that they need to. So you mentioned Clive Owen, and he's characterized as sort of, you know, he's the, you know, stereotypical straight out of central casting, shadowy government uh, bigwig who has started somehow this off the books operation to clone people and mold them into super soldiers. And younger Will Smith Jr., is his protege that he treats almost as a son, which I, you know, it, even though it's kind of a stock part, it's something that could work, and it is kind of interesting to see those flashes in the movie where it, it kind of explores the overlap between you know a, a military commander and a mentor figure and a father. And how the feelings that one might have toward any one of those roles can kind of become conflated into a single person in ways that are kind of uh, uncomfortable and lead to a lot of confusion. Junior Will Smith as Junior does a pretty good job of selling the the, the inner confusion and conflict that Junior feels because of that overlap. The problem is that Clive Owen doesn't get enough screen time to really develop why his character Clay Varys, why Clay Varys has chosen to make some of his uh, experiments basically mindless lemmings who, you know, are wep essentially weapons as he terms some of them, and why he chooses to make Junior kind of a surrogate son of sorts. Like, that's an interesting theme to explore, but the, the movie never really explains why he would choose to build such an obvious vulnerability into uh, his star pupil, so to speak. And that's kind of a plot hole that you kind of you you can't get out of your head simply because the movie keeps pushing it into your face the screenplay keeps wanting us to think about you know fatherhood and abandonment and the scars that henry brogan carries with him because of his own troubled relationship with his parents so when it's foregrounded like that so intentionally and obviously that simply calls into the spotlight all of these aspects of the plot that weren't really thought through to accommodate that kind of thematic uh, scaffolding, and it kind of collapses under its own weight. Yeah, and there was this uh, there was this part of the film where I thought it was going to go in one direction and explore how 
Will Smith grew up in a difficult home, and part of that affected him for the rest of his life. And the movie kind of takes him, clones him, and he grows up in a different home. He grows up in this kind of upper class, very protected home. And look at how that quote unquote protection, um, actually didn't benefit him. And maybe kind of just really kind of dig into that and, and make it kind of, uh, I don't know if you'd say fun, but really just kind of splash it on the screen of like, okay, same, same person raised in two different environments. And then you're starting to talk about some of the identity issues that this movie could explore within all of that. But yeah, I, I think overall with the thought, with my thoughts is, I thought there were large sections of the film that were pretty entertaining. And by the end, I, uh, I was uh, disappointed and even some of the action sequences at the end just didn't carry that luster that they did at the beginning. So, uh, Gemini Man for me is, uh, not the worst that it could be, uh, but certainly not anything that I think, uh, Ang Lee is capable of. I, I really do think he's capable of much more. This is interesting, and I wish that I could clone a version of you and sit him in front of the 60 FPS version of this film and see if his answer would be any different, because watching it watching it in this high frame rate takes it from something that, if I'd watched a more traditionally shot and projected version of the story, it, would, it wouldn't be—the writing wouldn't be any better— the the structural issues wouldn't necessarily be ever the fight scenes would be the same and so I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a good movie but i might be more willing to forgive its flaws but having seen it at this high frame rate it is both kind of a dumb movie <laughs> technical term but it's also it's not just a dumb movie it's also just it looks really bad it looks like kind of a uh, a video game cutscene. There are those uh, sequences you mentioned where we kind of get this point of view shot, uh, where it looks like a first-person shooter game. You kind of get the you know the gun that Junior is carrying in the frame, and we're we're turning our heads with his, and we're seeing what he sees. It feels like a video game. Alternatively, it it also feels a little bit like watching. Um, a television show on a television set with the motion smoothing turned on, which again is just throws into sharper relief some of the weaknesses in the writing where uh, Clay Varys is sitting in this obviously evil office where everything, you know, all the furniture is black and there's all these shiny black surfaces and he's berating an underling for not succeeding in assassinating Will Smith in a more uh, quick fashion. And with this 60 frames per second presentation, it goes from being kind of a cliche bad guy scene to being cliche bad guy scene where it looks kind of comically like a sitcom. And it's just, it's just not good. And it's, it's strange because Ang Lee is a filmmaker who can kind of write his own ticket in some ways with the kind of artistic and commercial credit he's earned and it one wonders what he sees in this presentation that he thinks couldn't be gained by a more traditional method of shooting yeah well i do have to say this uh anytime i go over to someone's house and motion smoothing is on i talk to them about turning it off and if they don't even know that it's on i just leave i just go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, so I assume I probably would dislike the film you, more if I saw it the way you viewed it. You, you are you are obviously uh, doing doing the Lord's, Lord's work and improving your friendships through <laughs> this model of behavior. Uh, before we go, I do want to talk about um, one thing that I found interesting about the story, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. There is towards the end, there's kind of this standoff that happens between Clay Varys and uh, the two versions of Will Smith. Uh, One of them uh, mentions that uh, there is no perfect version of me. Clay Varys has been talking about how he wants to create the perfect assassin, the perfect soldier, somebody who can do everything that Henry Brogan can do, but not have any of his pain. He wants to kind of have the perfect version of Henry Brogan. And Brogan's response is to say, there is no perfect version of me. And that's 
kind of expressive of maybe uh, something a lot of Christians can resonate with the idea that there's not, it's not possible to create a version of a human being without flaws. I'm curious to know if that line rang that bell for you or if there was something else that stood out to you in this movie kind of along those lines. Because the idea of having two doppelgangers lends itself well towards that kind of storytelling. So I'm curious to know if that had any resonance for you. Well, it kind of goes with the idea of one character being raised in two different homes. And both of those homes, from from what the movie seems to suggest, were not ideal. But you still see Will Smith's character experiencing some of the same problems and some of the same issues uh, in both households. And there's also something there that, that almost suggests, hey, there are these underlying issues that even in different environments, we still experience that desire to be loved or that desire for inner peace. And while, you know, the, the nature and nurture debate, we know too as, as Christians that there is, there are these flaws, there's are, there are these yearnings that all of us have. And those are the same across all of time. I, I wish the film would have even just kind of looked at that in its own pulpy way that we all experience these problems no matter where we've come from, where we've been. We want to be loved. We want to be seen. We want some sort of peace in life. And, um, yeah, I think some of the lines recalled that it just, some of those just get so lost in the storytelling and the poor storytelling. And so I, I think from there, it, um, uh, it didn't really resonate with me as, uh, like I, like I wished it did. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm pretty much on the same page as you there. I'm curious to know if our listeners who have seen Gemini Man, what they make of that theme or others in this film. Listeners, if you have seen this film and want to share your thoughts about it and or the technical aspects, maybe the high frame rate worked for you, maybe it didn't. We're curious to know your thoughts. You can tweet us at Pod to let us know, or you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com if you want to get a hold of us that way don't go anywhere in the second segment we're going to be talking about the latest film from the mind of Vince Gilligan El Camino Listeners, we want to thank all of you for supporting us on Patreon. When you support us on Patreon, you keep the show going. We very much appreciate it. We're grateful for it. And we have a number of levels of donation. One of our favorites on Patreon is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. It really is great. You get some fantastic perks. And Kevin, just as we're talking through this, I, I just I feel this kind of urge to ask you what what could someone <laughs> buy for five bucks? Five dollars would buy you a bowler hat for a little mouse. A bowler hat for a little mouse. There are a number of charities out there that are uh, actually bowler hats for mice, and all they do is just give mice hats who don't own them and it's i think it's really great they're they're changing lives and in all that um and so five bucks will will buy that yeah changing mouse lives for the better helping them look dapper maybe if some are looking to dress up as the riddler for halloween you can bring that joy into a small rodent's life for only five dollars only five bucks 
And that is storing up treasures. That's what that is all about. (laughs) (laughs) Treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Listeners, you can go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. So seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and support us. Like I mentioned before, we are grateful for all of your support and for helping us keep the show going. Yeah, that's right. We're also grateful for those of you who write in to let us know your thoughts about the show or about movies that you've seen lately. We've heard uh, quite a bit over the past week from listener James Sweeney Wade. He wrote in with some thoughts about Memories of Murder. That's a film that I have plugged multiple times on the show recently. It's Bong Joon-ho's, I guess you could say it's his answer to Zodiac, except that he made it long before Zodiac was even Mm. a twinkle in David Fincher's eye. (laughs) But um, uh, James uh, wrote in to say that he had, he says that having read a bit, I guess I understood the film more than I thought, but it was a difficult watch with no characters that I felt I could like or empathize with. And I must admit that most of the humor was lost on me in translation. I was sorry to hear that, James. Uh, I am glad that you took a chance on it, though. I really appreciate it. Wade, he goes on to say, I will be fascinated to hear what Wade thinks about Memories of Murder. So you have no excuse now. You must see this film. Yeah, I know. I I made a commitment on Twitter that I would watch the film before Parasite. Uh, I, I think I can. We'll see. It, it just depends on if there's a showing of Parasite that I have to get to. Maybe I won't. But I'm going to try really, really hard to do that so that... I can get on and be like, well, you know, in comparison with his previous films, um, and that'll just add another one to it. So going to try to get it in hopefully this month. Well, a vow made on Twitter, as we all know, is a binding vow. So we will hold you to that. Uh, James also wanted to let us know that he recently watched Ken Russell's film, The Devils. He wanted to know if either of us were Criterion Channel subscribers and or if we had seen that film. Uh, I have not, Wade. Um, James had a pretty interesting write-up on Letterboxd. You can search for him at Jim Sweeney on Letterboxd.com. He has a review of Ken Russell's 1971 film, The Devils, on there. But I haven't seen the film. I was wondering if you had had a chance to get out in front of this, Wade, and and see that film, uh, or if you were... A Criterion Channel subscriber, and we're planning to. I have not uh, seen the movie. I, I definitely want to. It sounds fascinating. And yeah, definitely, listeners, go check out Jim's uh, profile on Letterboxd. I, I don't have the Criterion Channel. I did have Filmstruck. And here, I found that I just wasn't watching it as much as I should. I just, I don't know why. For, for some reason or another, I wasn't getting as many ins. Uh, movies in on that schedule. So I go, I'm primarily a library now. And so I do a lot of myself through the library, but I would love to get the Criterion channel. And if anybody gives it to me, uh, I would gladly accept it. Yeah, I, and incidentally, I would gladly accept it too. So if you could only buy a subscription <laughs> for one seeing and believing host, I hope our listeners out there will make the right choice <laughs> you, know, you know how some streaming services have the family plan so you can share your login they need the podcast host plan where where it will allow you to have two logins and two people can watch that would be that would be perfect did, did we just invent a press screener <laughs> site i feel like we did except I it doesn't have it, like though. your email across someone's face uh That's to true. keep you from pirating it that that is that is very true. Well, thanks, uh, James, again for writing in and letting us know what you are watching, listeners. If you are wanting to share your uh, journeys and explorations in the land of cinema, we of course love to hear from those. We gave you our email and our Twitter address earlier so that you can get a hold of us. We always love hearing about them, and we look forward to reading them each and every week. APD sources say the suspect is Jesse Bruce Pinkman, a local man who was a student of White's before joining him in the drug trade. Sources speculate the two had a falling out, after which it is believed Pinkman was manufacturing the drug. Go for Joe. Police are now on the hunt for Pinkman, urging the community to remain vigilant. 
Yeah, I know who this is. At this point, who doesn't? We are back with seeing and believing. And before I jump into this next synopsis, Kevin, I want to ask you about your first car because the title of the movie we are reviewing is El Camino. And I'm, I'm wondering what your first car was. You get bonus points if your first car was an El Camino. <laughs> uh, no, my first car was nowhere near as hip as an El Camino is. I don't even know if El Camino, are El Camino's hip? I don't know anything about cars. My first car was a Honda Prelude. I don't remember the year, um, but it was, you know, it was just the, the car that my dad drove to work and that he let me drive once I had my driver's license and everything. So not not all that exciting or interesting. It got me where I wanted to go, mm-hmm. and I don't know. It was a good little car. Yeah. Wherever it is now, I salute it. <laughs> yeah, well, I I drove my our family van for the longest time, and then I saved up and got a 2000 F-150, which was – I loved it. I had been saving since, I don't know, a long, long time, and it was great. Until the transmission went out, um, and that was that was kind of sad. But uh, yeah, our first cars, listeners, we are going to jump into our second segment with our take on El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, written and directed by Vince Gilligan. El Camino stars Aaron Paul reprising his role as Jesse from Breaking Bad. The film picks up right where Breaking Bad left fans roughly six years ago. On the run, out of captivity, Jesse must now come to terms with his past and chart a new path for his future. Kevin, we've mentioned Breaking Bad on the show before. We've, of course, talked about Better Call Saul, the uh, Breaking Bad prequel, a number of times. We're fans of both of those shows. But I did want to ask you this as we kind of just dive into this segment. What did you think of the Breaking Bad finale? Did you watch it live? I'd love to just kind of hear about that experience. What did you think of that finale? And does this movie add anything beneficial or positive to the Breaking Bad universe? Well, I didn't watch the Breaking Bad finale live. I, I'm a cord cutter and I don't really get TV or cable or, or, or anything. So like most of the television shows that I watch, I had to wait basically a year until it came out on DVD. Cause back then I don't think Breaking Bad was on any streaming services. So I had to wait for my library or the Netflix by mail service to get the Breaking Bad season five DVDs in so that I could check them out <laughs> yes. and watch them that way. Um, I did, you know, I I was fully invested. I came to Breaking Bad like uh, I think season three was airing when I started watching, which meant that I just watched the first two seasons, just breezed right through them, and was breathlessly working my way through the show as the DVDs became available. Then um, the finale, I, I mostly liked. Um, and we should say before we get into this that while we will be talking about spoilers for this, you know, at this point, almost 10 year old show, um, we're like, it's, it's long enough that if you have been wanting to get into Breaking Bad, now's the time that you should have done it by. So, um, just fair warning. Um, but the finale was pretty good. I had some reservations about, maybe the emotional tenor of it, it felt a little bit like letting Walt go out in a blaze of glory the way he did seemed out of keeping with the way that the rest of the series kind of had its its whole moral perspective. And so even though I didn't have any problems with it, and it was in some ways a satisfying finale, I wasn't as on board with it as I maybe would have liked to. Um, so I was looking forward in some ways to seeing El Camino because I wanted to see if the way that it continued that resolution would maybe find an endpoint that felt more fitting to me. Um, not necessarily for Walt, because obviously his story ended with the finale of Breaking Bad, but maybe just... from a thematic perspective maybe find a way to tie that up more more tidily i think that overall it does i was a little bit leery also of the idea of 
continuing on a series that in some ways was so flawless, I think Vince Gilligan does find an interesting avenue to explore in following um, Jesse's journey. And in in that way, I think it's a success. Um, I don't know that it feels like a proper movie in its own right, um, but maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. I want to know what your thoughts were, Wade, though, on, on Breaking Bad as kind of its own entity, the way it ended, and the path forward that El Camino finds. Yeah, so, I mean, I like Breaking Bad a lot. I I didn't take to it in the earlier seasons like a number of people did. And, in fact, I feel like the first two seasons, with exceptions, weren't the easiest to get through. And, and, and perhaps it's because it's just such a dark film and Walter White's character does break bad, right? Like, there's there's no sort of change until you get to the end, and and we can you know, we could talk about that all day. But I did really feel like the television show picks up, especially in season four, and I like I like the finale a lot. I I think it's I think it's pretty good. There's a the, probably my favorite moment in the finale is when Walter White goes to see his former wife, Skylar, for the very last time. And so he's talking to her. She's she's played, of course, by Anna Gunn. And he talks about, you know, the reason that he did what he did. And she says, you know, don't tell me again that you did it for us. And he basically breaks down and he says, no, I, I did it for me. And I thought that was just a, an honest moment of this character journey and even as we watch El Camino there's a scene and I don't want to spoil it but it it definitely contrasts the characters at the beginning of the show Jesse and 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 Walter and then it pushes us to consider where they ended up and what they're like now and we see how this journey has has affected them. I think that the Breaking Bad finale is great. I don't think we'd need anything else. But after watching this movie, I realized that Jesse's story didn't have the closure I think it could have had. And I like what this movie did with his story. Even though, and it's, I think this is probably what, what you're saying as well. This doesn't really feel like a movie as much as a really long television episode. Take that how it is. Uh, some people are going to probably really like that. I, I think it, I think it works uh, for the most part pretty well. Yeah. I, I think maybe the, the, the flaw with El Camino is that it doesn't feel like it really has a whole lot of a narrative arc per se. It, it feels like it's sort of, it's following Jesse kind of through the week or so after the final shot of that we see of him in the Breaking Bad finale and kind of goes from there. Um which in in some ways I do appreciate partly because like you said it gives us a little bit more closure to his character and partly because it also it does put the lie a little bit to that final blaze of glory dissatisfaction I mentioned earlier where it shows that even though uh Walter is his story is is done the story of the other characters doesn't end there. The universe, essentially, in Breaking Bad, wasn't centered solely around Walter White going from high school teacher to drug lord. And I did appreciate that because it does speak to something that Gilligan kind of does overall with this universe, which is to suggest that you know every moral choice that we make or every choice period has effects on the world around us that even if we can't see are very real and can persist for a very long time. So watching El Camino kind of follow that thematic thread simply by virtue of its of its existence and focusing on a different character other than Walt I appreciate it. I I do think that it does kind of feel like there are a lot of scenes where characters that we knew before or recognize kind of get one last scene in order to sort of like say, okay, this is where they ended up or this is the, the place where we're leaving them. And it, I think it would have been a stronger film if maybe it had chosen to focus more strongly on just maybe one of those stories and flush it out a little bit more in how much it... Uh, speaks to Jesse's character. That said, I do think that Gilligan does find a compelling through line to follow for this movie, which is that Jesse, in a lot of ways, in the entire run of Breaking Bad, was 
a young man kind of looking for direction and more than that, looking for somebody who would see him and encourage him and also find someone to whom he could look up to. Now, obviously, the character in Breaking Bad that he does that with is a really unworthy object of that kind of uh, attention and devotion. Um, But it's interesting to watch that aspect of his character find new directions to go in El Camino. Yeah, and I think that by 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 giving us kind of a last look at certain characters and even flashbacks, we, we know where characters are going to go, allows us to consider those moments uh, in a different way. So I will say Jonathan Banks, we see him uh, one last time. And, of course, we see him in Better Call Saul. We know what happens to him in Breaking Bad. But there's something about his performance and the dialogue where we really kind of are are forced to consider um, what his demise did and how that might feel for him or perhaps the people around him, the people who are close to him. But so I I think some of those quote unquote cameos work really well. And then I do have to say probably my favorite aspect of this movie is Jesse Plemons reprising Todd. And Todd was such an interesting character, how he could be almost boyish and uh innocent but also extremely brutal and Plemons is one of my favorites he's incredible i think in everything that he's in and he's just so he's just so funny here and i i appreciate being able to see that and explore his character a little bit more and in addition, what that does is it helps us to see that there are different facets to people and how sometimes this portrayal of innocence hides these darker urges. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what Breaking Bad is about, is about these, these deep, dark urges that if we kind of open the door for them, uh, they can just kind of go everywhere. And it all comes back to that theme that we've mentioned when we talk about uh, Better Call Saul, it's all about consequences. And we see the consequences kind of falling out a little bit further uh, in this uh, in this movie. Yeah, and the, the movie also ends on a note that in some ways feels like a thesis statement for Vince Gilligan's entire body of work. So it's a, a conversation between Jesse and another character. And Jesse is is talking to them about something they said in the past and and he says i like what you said about uh you know just following wherever the universe takes you taking whatever the universe gives you and sort of um in that moment he's he's essentially expressing uh the idea that you know you just the universe is kind of this impersonal force and we don't really control where we go or what we do and the person he's talking to says i know i said that but I don't think that's actually a good way to live. A better way is to make your own choices. And that's sort of, in a lot of ways, what the organizing principle for all of this is. And in that way, I feel like El Camino both finds a good note to end itself on, and in some ways, it feels like a fitting culmination to the entire Breaking Bad mythos, if you can call it that. The idea that morality basically consists of making your own choices, owning responsibility, and not trying to not trying to not trying to pass the buck. That essentially we make our choices and we are held responsible for them. So the best thing for us to do is to try to make good ones and to live mindfully of, of that responsibility. And I really appreciate that. And it's one reason why I I just I really like the stories that Vince Gilligan tells because that kind of rigorous moral outlook is something that i don't know i I appreciate all the more as the years go by yeah and and jesse is kind of faced with the the question here of what does his future hold uh now and is there are there things that a person can do that automatically cripple their future Uh, can he have children can he start a new life can he, as one character says, do something special? And there's this, there's this good line 
It's from Robert Forster, who sadly just passed away, and he plays the individual in the Breaking Bad series that, um, I don't know the best way to describe it, Kevin, he, he, he gets people a new identity, and he gives them kind of this way out. And at one point, uh, he says, you made your own luck, and that these, these things that are happening are the natural fallout of your choices. And so, Aaron Paul's quest to get to wherever he wants to go is him saying, okay, I've made my own luck and now I've got to somehow get out of that. But even within this whole, I've got to find somewhere to get out of it, uh, somehow get out of that. There's this idea of, is grace possible? Is forgiveness possible? Is it possible, despite all the evil that he's done, in genuine repentance for him to say, okay, I can start fresh and I can start new. And the series, or sorry, the movie here, seems to suggest that maybe it can. And this goes back to uh, Walter White's demise. And he has done so much wrong. And yet he's given this Samson-style death. And as dark as the show is... Is the, is this television show and is now the movie El Camino suggesting to us now that, hey, it's not too late to somehow try to make things right? Uh, at, at the very least, it raises questions regarding some of those ideas. Yeah. In some ways, the, there, there's a series of figures who show up throughout El Camino and each of them kind of has their own spin on that same idea. So the film opens with a conversation between Jesse and Mike Ehrman Trout. And Mike says, the one thing that you can't do is make the past right. You can't make things right. Then later on, there's a moment that, as you mentioned earlier, contrasts Jesse with Walt. And the idea that Jesse's young, he kind of has his whole, whole life ahead of him. He can kind of do anything he wants and that's contrasted with Walt, who kind of just doesn't really see anything he did as worth anything until he got into the drug trade. And that's kind of what he sees as being truly alive and doing what he was meant for, which is a really sad, dismaying way to see one's life. And then finally, there is that final moment the film closes on where we end with the idea that you make your choices and you do what you can to live virtuously. And that those kind of are very intentionally put into the film, maybe not as an arc per se. Like we don't see Jesse moving from one point of view to the other. It's more like a series of arguments that are presented to him and to us in the audience and are kind of, we are invited to reflect on them, which in some ways isn't fully satisfying as a, as a narrative film. But it is engaging to think about and discuss. Um, and I think that that's something that not a whole lot of other television shows really intentionally go for with, with their storytelling, uh, at least not on the same themes that, that Vince Gilligan is doing here. So I, I appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, like you mentioned, the arc could have been a little bit clearer for a narrative picture. I I will say this, part of the problem, and I, I think maybe the the main weakness of this film is the climax. There's this kind of violent climax, and it's shot pretty well, and it's very tense. I just don't know if Gilligan has a handle on what exactly it all means, and I left that climax kind of just wondering, okay, what does this mean? Is this just, okay, this is just desperation? Or is there some sort of character development that's happening? And I think that could have been a little bit tighter, uh, which could have overall, you know, benefited the movie. I, I will say this too. I, I was genuinely touched by a couple of moments in this film. And one of them in particular is when Badger and Skinny Pete, uh, are given this grace note. And it really is kind of this, it's a great moment and a great payoff for those two, you know, minor characters in Breaking Bad. Yeah, it was it was nice to to see them and 
in a lot of ways the the little interlude we get with them almost feels like that scene from the 40 year old virgin where uh paul rudd and uh i can't remember the the other person see with them but they're playing video games and they're they're essentially like trading these barbs back and forth with each other as they play this fighting game with each other a really amusing scene from that film this film uh film also has a scene with a similar vibe where Skinny Pete and Badger are just sitting and playing a video game and just sort of bantering with each other. And it's great because we we like these characters. It's also great because it's just kind of a hangout moment in a movie that otherwise is very much kind of about Jesse very narrowly and, and taking him through various scenarios. So in that way, it's it's nice to see Vince Gilligan stretching his legs in moments like that. Though I agree that at the end of the movie, it does feel a little bit like El Camino's directionless in that, or maybe not directionless, maybe it's just a structure problem where the climax of the film doesn't really seem to be have as much of a thematic and emotional payoff, I guess, as you would have liked from a, a film of this nature. It's it's tense and it's exciting, and there's a re- there's kind of an emotional investment in that Jesse is faced with uh, some characters from his past in Breaking Bad who are kind of his tormentors in a lot of ways, and so there's this emotional investment in kind of seeing him deal with that situation and overcoming it in some way. But it doesn't the the way that it's staged. You're right; doesn't seem like it really says anything other than that we like Jesse and we want him to succeed, which given how much the the rest of the film is focused on taking him through these moral scenarios and kind of exploring its its moral universe a little bit more, it does feel a little bit unsatisfying. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's probably, like I mentioned, the, the biggest flaw of the movie for me. Uh, in a film that I really did like, and I do have to give it to Gilligan, Instead of going big and huge like you would expect from a film like this, uh, he keeps the story small and close to his chest. And uh, there's something very, you know, to appreciate about this movie uh, and about that uh, particular um, approach. And so I, yeah, I did enjoy it. Listeners, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie is currently streaming on Netflix. We'd love to get your thoughts on the movie. What did you think of its continuation of the Breaking Bad saga? You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. Well, we have reached the end of our show, and now we take an opportunity to recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, you're up first this week. What would you like to recommend to the Seeing and Believing family out in the uh, out on the internet, the interwebs? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it is October, so of course I am watching scary movies and, and thinking about scary movies. Um, and the recommendation I have for this week is a movie that's maybe not scary in uh, a traditional horror movie sense, but I think is just a really interesting, if flawed, gothic story. And I'm talking, of course, about Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 adaptation of Dracula. So up front, I don't think this is a perfect film by any means. There's problems with it that... Uh, are fairly noticeable. It's I. It, it wouldn't be anything new to say that the Coppola version of Dracula isn't a great film, but I think it's a very good film, and I think it's a really underrated one. I find its perspective on Dracula to be really interesting. Essentially, what it does is it flips the script on bram stoker's novel and posits dracula not as sort of this this vampiric symbol of eastern european decadence that is trying to overwhelm the uh moral sense and the tranquility of victorian england instead coppola puts dracula as sort of a romantic anti-hero who is set in opposition to a bunch of weirdos and milk toasts played by keanu reeves and anthony hopkins and carrie elway's and is pursuing a romance 
with Mina Harker. It's a really interesting retelling of the story, and it doesn't always entirely work, but it is just jaw-droppingly gorgeous. It has a lot of thought-provoking things to suggest in the way that does flip the familiar tale on its head in this way. It kind of encourages you to think about evil differently and encourages you to interrogate why, why you think of Dracula as evil. And if you reaffirm that he is evil, why don't you agree with the movie's vision of him as sort of this romantic anti-hero? I think it's, it's really interesting. It's not a family movie by any means. So I would say to those members of the Seeing and Believing family, as you say, Wade, that are listening in, maybe don't watch this with the kids, but I think it's a movie that should have a better reputation than it does, maybe. So Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992, directed by the great Francis Ford Coppola, is my recommendation for the week. Yeah, well, uh, that is on my watch list. I have not had a chance to see it. It would be a great October watch if I can get to it. But yeah, it's it's one that I have been thinking about as I put together a list of like scary movies. That's definitely one on there that hopefully I will uh, check out soon. I'm going to go in a different direction. If we're talking about scary, I, I'm going more towards the warm and fuzzies. Disney Plus will be released... It will commence next month, and I was just kind of glancing at a number of uh, releases that were going to hit the platform, and I was surprised to find a 2009 documentary that I recently watched. It's directed by Don Hahn. It's called Waking Sleeping Beauty. This is a documentary about the Disney animators who, from roughly 1984 to 1994, facilitated what we now know as the Disney animation renaissance. So they produced, put together, wrote movies like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. We all know those movies because we watched their live-action remakes recently. And I really do appreciate this documentary because it tells the story of not only how those films are made, but it also digs into the corporate culture of Disney at that time. And you really get this this triangle of conflict. You have Michael Eisner, who, of course, is running Disney. You have Jeffrey Katzenberg, who would later go on, go on and help form DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg. He's running the animation department at Disney. And then... You have Roy Disney, who's the nephew of Walt Disney, and he is a part of the company, and they're all kind of fighting with each other. And in the middle of that, we get this storm of creativity, and I appreciate how the documentary kind of lines all that out, and I love the history of it, and I love the the making of it history, so uh, a lot kind of going on with this movie. Uh, so if you... Listeners are going to get Disney+. Plus. This is one of those movies uh, that you can uh, check out. You can add to your watch list. And it's not as um, – it's not necessarily pro-Disney in the sense that it kind of covers their flaws. Uh, so I'm, I'm surprised that it's going to be on uh, Disney+. Plus. But yeah, so uh, 2009's Waking Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, maybe it's it's that Disney has become such a cultural behemoth by now that it figures it doesn't have a whole lot to fear from <laughs> a single documentary. But I know that's that's a good pick. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. So maybe if I end up getting Disney Plus myself, I'm I might check it out, or I might just mooch off of somebody else's Disney Plus and watch it that way. Who knows? It's the we'll podcast see. host plan. Two right, logins. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, listeners, that is all for today. Once again, you can email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. Make sure to rate and review our show on iTunes. It is a huge help for us. Just go to iTunes, search Seeing and Believing, type out a review, give us a rating. It would be much appreciated. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com and our Patreon supporters. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. 
You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.